You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. How we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who brings rich life out of the barren ground, who gives grace into our nothingness. We're so grateful that your spirit is here with us today. We pray that you would now, through your spirit, illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we would be those who respond to your word of grace with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, so grateful to be with you today. I'm Corey. I'm the senior pastor here at Third, and want to welcome you if you're visiting today. We've been in a sermon series since mid-January that we're calling "The Way of Jesus." I hope that you're seeing that there's sort of a two, a, 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 a dual way to understand that. Of course, we're looking at the way, literal way of Jesus, as he increasingly makes his way towards Jerusalem and ultimately the cross where he will give his life for us. So we're looking at his way. But we've also seen week by week that Jesus is also calling us on his way, that we might take up our cross, that we might follow him along his same path of giving up his very self. So um, this morning, we're looking at a pretty powerful passage about how Jesus calls a very um, interesting young man who probably reminds us a lot of ourselves in some ways. Um, to follow him. And that's in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. So if you'll open your Bibles there, if you have them. Um, My friend Alan Deserf is reading. Come on up, Alan. Alan is also one of our mission partners. You might know Alan. And Alan is spending a couple weeks with us here. He's been working with a lot of our staff, doing some coaching. Um, Alan's a dear friend. Grateful for you, Alan. So um, let's hear God's word as Alan reads it. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. Good morning. Um, People of God, the word of God from Mark 10 from verses 17 to 31. The rich young man. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard. It is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can, in, can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, 
No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of God. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. You know, sometimes it can be a good thing to lose hope. I read an article, just a, a silly little article a few years ago, I remember, about a little girl who, after reading the Harry Potter series, decided that she too wanted to fly on a broom. So she attempted it. Uh, thankfully, she um, only jumped off the countertops in her kitchen, and so she only broke her arm. Um, <laughs> could have been much worse. And so with any luck, this little girl has lost all hope that she can fly so that she can never do it again. And that's what I mean when I say sometimes it's a good thing to lose hope if the thing that you're hoping in can cause you harm, can bring ruination, or even bring ultimate death. Sometimes it's a good thing to lose hope. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is pushing this young man to lose hope. He's pushing him to lose hope in something that is bringing him ultimate and eternal death. He's pushing him to lose hope in what is harming him so that he would find his hope in what brings ultimate life. So let's look at this passage together. It's naturally broken up into sort of three sections. So let's first look at verses 17 through 22, which is really the, the challenge of Jesus. And then we'll look at verses 23 through 27, which is the comfort of Jesus. And then we'll look at the final section, verses 28 through 31, which is the promise of Jesus, okay? So let's do that together. Let's start with the challenge of Jesus. Let's look at verses 17 through 22. A man runs up and falls on his knees before Jesus. We learn from the other three gospels where this story also occurs that this is a, a rich young ruler, which means that he's not only wealthy, but he's also a person of significant power and importance in his community. He clearly is a winner at life. Uh, he's probably like 28. He's super successful. He's already made partner. He's got a couple million in the bank. Um, and we also learn that he's actually a really good guy. Many people in the ancient world accrued their wealth through injustice and oppression, but this man didn't. He's a good man. He is moral and religious and hardworking. He has integrity in his business. He doesn't cheat. He goes to church. He gets his kids baptized. This is probably the kind of guy that you would nominate to be an elder at third or that you would ask to be on your nonprofit board. He's a very powerful, uh, good, attractive man. Uh, and yet he feels that he's missing something, as successful people often do. We often feel like there's yet some spiritual hunger in our life. And so he comes to Jesus, who's a well-known prophet at this point, and he asks a question that a winner like him would ask. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you can see, even by the way that he asks the question, that he has a mindset of achievement, right? 
What must I do? If a winner thinks, well, there's something missing in my life, I must need to do something to secure it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And you got to love Jesus because Jesus just decides to mess with him a little bit. And so he, first of all, he doesn't answer him directly. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus knows that this is a good man who is coming to another person that he thinks is a good man, asking for some good advice about how to be good. And so Jesus decides to just give him some good advice. He says, well, you know the commandments. And listen to what Jesus, the commandments that Jesus mentions. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness, um, do not defraud and honor your father and mother. Notice, uh, these are a few of the Ten Commandments. It's number five through number nine. And then he throws in this extra one about not defrauding. Notice which ones are missing, though. He deliberately omits number one through four, which are all about your relationship with God. And he also omits number 10, which is about what? Money, covetousness, right? The, The commandments that Jesus mentions are all actually pretty quantifiable. And you could even argue achievable. You know, if you tried real hard... If you're a good person, you could actually think that you might accomplish number six through nine. And this guy falls right into Jesus' trap. He says, yep, Jesus, I know all those. I got those covered. In fact, I've been doing those since I was a little boy. And he probably has. What he's kind of saying is, come on, man. Can't you give me a little tougher assignment? I'm a winner. I got those in the bag. And then it says this wonderful phrase in verse 21. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He loves him. And so now, with this incredible love, not to shame him, I think, but to to really expose him gently and to woo him to himself, Jesus says, okay, my brother, you only have to do one more thing to get eternal life. And the guy's ready, right? He's ready to do the task. His eyes widen and he leans forward. He's ready to do the thing that... Jesus is going to ask him to do. And he says, okay, here's what you need to do. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven and follow me. Wow. What's Jesus doing here? Is Jesus saying, is he literally saying this, that if you want to go to heaven, if you want to get eternal life, you have to give all your money away and give everything you have to the poor? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is he's trying to expose the core motivating principle in this man's life, right? He's basically saying, look, I want you to imagine your life without money for just a moment. I want you to imagine all of it gone. Imagine no trust funds, no houses on the beach, you know, nothing. All of it's gone. You're just a schmo. All your power gone. All your money gone. All you have is me. Can you do it? And he can't. He walks away. So Jesus is showing this young man that though he may have kept nearly all the Ten Commandments, he has broken the first, the most important one. And what is that? Any of you guys know what the first commandment is, class? Show no other gods before me, right? That's a commandment against idolatry. Worship no gods but the true and living God. Serve nothing but God. And you might say, well, doesn't this man worship God? He's clearly very religious. Well, on the surface, yet. But what Jesus is doing through this powerful act of counseling, if you will, is that he is revealing that this man worships his wealth far more than he worships God. You know, and, and, it's, and it's, it's very disturbing 
Because what we see is that this money has become for him a greater God. It's what he depends on for security and significance and health and happiness. It has become such a powerful and controlling force in his life that when Jesus asks him to give it all away, he can't do it. So what we see here is really an important lesson for us is that idols, and I hope if you've been around third for a while, you know that this is something we talk a lot about here, is that idols are not just like little trinkets on a shelf or statues that you see in you know, some Eastern temple, but that idols are anything in our life that take the place of God and that begin to do for us what God alone is supposed to do, right? A good way to think about this is, um, I think I have this up here on a slide, is a functional trust versus a stated trust. Have you ever thought about that before? We all, I think many of you would state verbally that your trust is God alone, that Jesus is your savior, that you depend on God for your life, you depend on God for your salvation. But what your functional trust is could often be quite different than what you state your trust to be. Um, You say that God is your trust, but when a work project fails and you get reprimanded or demoted, and you're not just disappointed, but you're utterly depressed so that the bottom starts to fall out of your life, what that exposes is that though you state your trust in God, your functional trust is probably your work, your reputation, and your performance. Does that make sense? Or you might state that Jesus is your savior, but when your kid ends up failing at life and your whole sense of identity begins to fall apart, that's a sign that Jesus isn't actually your savior. What is functionally your savior is your reputation as a parent and a father and your identity, right, as a good person. Whenever things that we rely on are threatened or challenged, our real gods are exposed. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's challenging this man's functional trust. He's exposing his true God. He's saying to him, you can be good, you can be clean, you can be keeping all the rules, and yet you are an idolater because you have broken the most important part of the law. You are guilty of loving something more than God. You have failed in the one thing that God truly requires, and that is to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength. The reason I think this is such an important story, especially for people like us, third family, is because a lot of us here are like this young man. I am like this young man. I always am very powerfully convicted by this story. We're winners, right? Look around, y'all. We're winners, right? We got a lot of worldly success. We have a lot of money. We're we're all very religious. You you wouldn't be here on a Sunday morning if you weren't. We're good. We're not outwardly immoral. Uh, Most of us are rule followers. And yet Jesus is pulling the curtain back on people like us, saying that you may have no sin on your list whatsoever, and yet you can be the greatest lawbreaker because every single one of us is guilty of breaking that first command of loving something more than God himself. And that's really the challenge of this text that you need to ask yourself is what is it for you? What is your functional trust? I would venture to say, and I know that this, this passage is about more than money, but, we, but let's, let's be clear, friends. For a lot of us, it is money. For a lot of us, our functional trust is our wealth. I think that's why we can't really look away from this. And what I mean by that is, of course, is that it's not like you sort of gleefully count your cash like Ebenezer Scrooge or something, although some of you may do that, and you check, check, your, check your crypto wallet every day, right? <laughs> 
It's, it's, that our, it's that our wealth is a vehicle to get the things that we most want, to be able to go to nice restaurants and take good vacations, right? And to provide for our kids' education and to move around in a professional uh, peer group and culture. And, and Jesus is saying, look, your wealth is way more important to you than you know and that you are able to acknowledge. It's not just the money that you want. It's the power. It's the status. It's the significance. It's the security. That's the reason why you, maybe you can't give huge amounts of it away. Um, maybe that's why you get scared and worried that you don't have enough. Maybe it's because it's money is not just money. It's your savior. It's your essence. It's your identity. So that's the, really the challenge here. And you got to ask some hard questions about this. Here's a good one. What do you worry about? What you worry about often reveals where you trust God the least. What you worry about often reveals where you trust God the least. Recently, um, I'll just be honest with you, as the, you know, as the economy is destabilizing and as there's a specter of war and as inflation is going up and as gas prices are going up, I mean, I spent 70 bucks to put gas in my minivan yesterday. I mean, Literally, as I'm pumping gas in my minivan, I am feeling my anxiety rising, right? I'm worrying. Are we going to have enough? I've got, why do we have so many kids, you know? <laughs> Are we going to be able to send them to college, you know? <laughs> what? I'm just like ruminating all of this, literally, as I'm pumping gas. And what I'm realizing is that my anxiety is revealing my idols. I say, I'm singing here in church, God is my refuge, whatever. My money is my refuge. My money is my refuge. Because it gives me such a sense of control over the future. And I think if I can be honest about that as your pastor, I think you need to be honest about that for yourself too. All right? So ask yourself, what is most important to you? What, if it were taken away from you, would you feel like your life is utterly destabilized or maybe not even worth living anymore? Here's the point. Jesus reveals in this very powerful challenge that though we may be winners at life, though we may be good and religious, we are lawbreakers. We are idolaters. And that especially for the rich, let's be clear, all of us here are in that category, that especially for the rich, Money has such a power to blind us from spiritual truth that unless there is a miraculous intervention from God, we're all lost. We're lost. That's that's the challenge of Jesus, right? And it's serious. Okay, so what about the comfort? Because this is hard. And I mean, this young man can't believe it. His face falls, he's grieved, he walks away, he's shocked, he hangs his head. His, uh, his disciples are freaked out. They're like, what? This is like the perfect dude. I just nominated him for elder. And you're, and you're saying he's lost? And then Jesus says this in verse 24. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are stupefied. Now, kids, can you, can you picture that, kids? Imagine like a little needle and trying to get a camel through it. I mean, I, you probably couldn't even get your hamster through, through the eye of the needle, right? <laughs> or, or a, I don't know, a cockroach. I mean, what Jesus is saying is so ridiculous and so impossible and so outlandish 
The, the disciples are absolutely stupefied. And you're saying, so basically, Jesus, you're saying it's impossible. And Jesus says, yep. And that's right where he wants them, right? The basic human approach to salvation is all about doing, doing. Remember this man's question. What was it, class? What was the question? What must I do? to be saved. And that is the operating mentality of all human morality and religion. What must I do to be saved? It's baked into us, right? What must I do? And religion answers back, you need to pray more, to do more, to work harder, to be a better person, uh, to give more away, whatever. The whole concept is built that salvation or eternal life or whatever you call it is something that you achieve and that you earn through your efforts by accomplishing a moral standard and keeping the rules. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be received by God? What must I do to be accepted? You might have thought that this was here because I'm thirsty. I'm not. It's a prop. <laughs> I am thirsty too. <laughs> so maybe I will drink some. It's almost like... Um, I think we often feel that when we come to God, our life is like an empty glass. And, we have, and when we come to God, we feel that we must come with something in the glass, something in the glass, to merit our acceptance before him, right? And every little effort that we do fills it up a little bit. So we say, look, God, look, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. Look, look at all that I do. For, for other people. Um, look, I read the Bible and pray as much as I can. I try to give at least, you know, 10% of my money away. Um, I try to make the world a better place. And, and this often happens unconsciously, but with each effort, we hope to fill up our glass so that we can come to God and say, look how full I am. Look how full I am. And what is so shocking about what Jesus is doing here is that he is turning that whole system of achievement-based religion and morality completely on its head. He is showing this young man that his glass is indeed very, very full, but it actually achieves him nothing. Nothing in the kingdom of God. He is trying to push him and the disciples to a place of despair. Here is the model guy and he's got nothing in the kingdom. He's lost. He, Jesus wants us to lose hope in our self-salvation project. He wants us to get to the place where we see that when it comes to God, when it comes to our efforts, we have nothing. If you have your Bibles, Look, look at them for a moment, and do you see what story comes right before this one in the Gospel of Mark? Do you guys see that? What story is it? Yeah, the one about the little children. And this is not an accident. Jesus says in verses 13 through 16 that the little children, people who literally have nothing, follow me on this class. This is so, Jesus is so amazing. He says, little children who literally have nothing have everything they need to get into the kingdom, 
But this man who has everything, in the end, has absolutely nothing. You need nothing if you want to get everything. And if you think you have everything, you have nothing. Jesus wants us to get to the point where we see there is truly no hope to save ourselves, that it is a total impossibility that we are such constant lawbreakers and such persistent idolaters that we truly can do nothing to save ourselves. He wants us to despair to the point where we feel our profound need. And only then, he says, are you ready to receive the miracle of grace? What is impossible with people is possible with God. What is impossible to achieve through our own efforts, God makes possible through his grace. Religion asks, how full are you? Are you full enough? Jesus asks, are you empty enough? Are you empty enough to receive the kingdom? Are you? Do you know you have nothing to offer to God? Have you come to that place of despair and hopelessness in your own efforts? Have you ever found yourself treasuring those words of the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, helpless come to thee for grace, naked come to thee for dress, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the posture of childlike helplessness, and that is the path to the kingdom of Jesus. We have to especially ask ourselves this question because we are among the richest in the world. And Jesus is not against rich people. He loves rich people. You see, he loves them. But the reason Jesus singles out rich people so much is because wealth is so dangerous because it has such a power to, to blind us to our true spiritual state. It leads us to believe that we're secure that we're confident. It leads us to self-satisfaction and pride and that sense of pride and self-assurance is the greatest enemy to the gospel. It is the greatest enemy to the kind of childlike, I have nothing faith that Jesus is calling us to here. Until you come with nothing in your hands, until you see yourself as helpless and impoverished before God, you are not in the kingdom. You're not in. No matter how religious you may be, you're lost. And that is the severe warning of this text, to the rich especially. I hope you're hearing that warning. But here's the good news. If you're here today and you are poor in spirit, you are empty. If you are feeling your own shame and guilt and failure, if you are at the end of your rope, if you have lost hope in your ability to make life work on your own, if you just feel like, you know what, I can't do it anymore, here's the good news. If that's you, you're in the best possible place. The kingdom's for you. The kingdom is for the last and the lost and the least and the small and the needy. Jesus wants you to lose hope in yourself so you'll deposit your eternal hope in him alone. The gospel is, the salvation is not to be achieved, it is to be received this young man wanted to prove his fullness. Jesus wants us to come to terms with our emptiness. And he says, only at that place of emptiness will you be empty enough to have the miracle of God's grace 
pour into your empty soul the fullness of life. That's the comfort of Jesus. So we've seen the challenge that Jesus brings this man to the place of despair, revealing and exposing his idolatry. Is Jesus doing that for you? And then once he's at that place of helplessness and despair, Jesus is ready to give him the abundant grace of God that is prepared for the helpless, empty people of the world. Is that you? And then finally, he offers this promise at the end, verses 28. Peter's bewildered. He cries out, we've left everything to follow you. (laughs) Peter, dude, Peter, he's such a mess. (laughs) He's like, Jesus, come on, man. Do you see what we've lost? We've we've done, is is what we've done worth anything, right? If human efforts amount to nothing, do all of these sacrifices that we've made, are they even worth it? And Jesus says, it is. It is worth it, Peter. Far more than you ever imagined. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me or for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and the age to come eternal life. I want to note a couple things as we close here. First of all, Jesus does affirm the hard call to discipleship. Jesus says to these guys, you know, at the end, he doesn't say, yeah, guys, it's just grace. Just trust grace. You don't have to do it. No, he actually says, he affirms this hard call. He says, you got to give up stuff, right? Yes, I'm serious. I'm calling you to sever allegiances with anything that competes with me and to follow me. And I, I, I do want to affirm that. And I, this season of Lent, it's an important time to reckon with this, brothers and sisters, that the call of discipleship of Jesus is to give up whatever is keeping you from full allegiance to him. He asked fishermen to leave their nets. He asked tax collectors to walk away from their business. He asked wealthy people to leave their money. If you want Jesus to be your savior, you can't just like add him into your life as like an essence or a little bit of sprinkling seasonal religious salt. To follow him is not an additional obligation. He actually judges and subordinates all other allegiances. He demands that he take priority even over the best things in your life. I mean, he mentions mothers and fathers and those those are good things, right? He's saying, if anything is hindering you from following me, you must give it up and follow me. Jesus really did say these things. This is not a metaphor. Let's not redefine Christianity and try to sort of make Jesus into a more comfortable version, uh, a Jesus who is nice and who would never call us to give away anything, uh, a Jesus who would never call us to forsake our closest relationships as they compete with him, a Jesus who's fine with saying that we're Christians while also pursuing worldly success and comfort achievement. No, Jesus is serious. He wants total allegiance. He may be asking some of you to give radical portions of your wealth away. He may be calling you, some of you, to move to a new place. He may call you to a radical allegiance with the poor. He he may call you to disrupt your life. You know, Here's an example. If what you're giving right now has no impact on where you live or where you eat or the clothes you wear or the vacations you take or any of your lifestyle, you're probably not giving sacrificially. And therefore, if you're wealthy, you're probably not getting to the core of the idol of money in your life. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus would say to us, leave it all. This is the real Jesus. But listen, Jesus never calls you to lose anything, simply to lose it. He promises reward. 
He's saying, you're going to get back a hundred times as much. I'm asking you to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. And that's the secret to Christian discipleship is that it's very demanding, but it's never a sacrifice. It's very demanding because Jesus is asking us to give up everything to follow him, but it's never a sacrifice because he's always promising to give so much more than we ever lose. If you were dying of some deadly disease and your doctor tells you that he has a cure, but it is so expensive that it's gonna cost you everything you have to get it, what would you say? Oh, I just can't give up my wedding china. You know, it's so pretty. No, you know, not, not, nothing that you have, no account, nothing in your accounts, nothing in your house is, is worth losing your life. And this is what Jesus is offering. Yes, he says, give me everything. Yes, he says, I don't want a little time or a little money or work. I want you. Yes, he says, I don't want a bits of you. I want the whole thing. Yes, he asked for all. But what he is offering is life. What he's offering is escape from spiritual death. What he's offering is a new family, a, a new community, a new creation. This is what he is offering. In doing the hard thing, we get everything. We get him, the treasure, the riches, the water of life. The secret, I think, to this passage is that there is not just one rich young ruler, but two. That yes, there's a rich young ruler, but Jesus himself is the rich young ruler. Jesus himself is the young prince of heaven. Jesus himself is the one who has far more than this young man, everything, all the riches, all the power, all the glory of the triune God. And yet Jesus knows, looking into the eyes of this young man, that Jesus has come to lose everything for him to give it up all for him, to renounce all of his riches for him. And he's saying to this young man, I am the ultimate rich young ruler has given away everything to get you. Now, why in the world can't you lose a little bit of yours to get me? It's worth it. That's the call. Will you lose hope? Will you lose hope in your goodness? Will you lose hope in your self-salvation? Will you lose hope in your idols? And when you look to Jesus, the rich young ruler who wants to give it all to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are the rich young ruler, the one who, though you had everything, lost it all to gain us. And Lord, we recognize we have so many things in our lives that crowd out our allegiance to you, especially our money, especially our wealth. So we pray that you would do the work of your grace in us, that we would be willing to lose all to gain you. We pray this in your name. Amen.